Let's pray. Father, we come to you with thanksgiving in our hearts. And if, and if that's not the case, Lord, I pray that you would change our hearts. We come so grateful that you have extended yourself to us. You have reached to us when we would never turn to you. And now you have commanded us to so many things which are impossible to us. And so we come to you again with confidence that what you have commanded what is also what you have promised. And you will fulfill in us what you have promised. As Nathan said, you are faithful to complete the work that you've begun. And so we ask this morning as we gather, as we worship, as we encourage one another, and as we come to your word, that, Lord, your spirit would do a work in our hearts. Transform us, we pray. We come to you this morning so needy. As we're going to look at this morning, we can't even come to repentance without your merciful and gracious work for us. And so, Lord, we invite this. We ask you to do what you have promised among us. And we lift up especially those this morning who are suffering from our congregation, whether it's from sickness or lack or loneliness, whatever the need. Lord, we ask that you would transform your church to appropriately and lovingly care for one another, that we would reach out to one another. We would take the responsibility that you have given us as a body, as a family, to care for one another, and that we would do this as your Holy Spirit leads us, and that you ultimately would be our one supply. For we are sinners, and we will fail, but you are always faithful. And so, Lord, our, our hope is ultimately in you and not just in one another. Give us illumination by your Holy Spirit this morning as we come to your word, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Now, normally we read a text, um, usually someone else does that, um, but this morning we're beginning a, a large text um, which would take quite a long time to read, and so I'm going to actually just bite off the, the earliest bits of it and read it as we talk. We are in Genesis once again. Now, Leighton started our, our Mark series last week, and uh, through the summer we're going to hear uh, a lot more of Leighton. We're back in Genesis um, and chapter 42. And in Genesis 37, Joseph dreamed two dreams. Uh, both predicted Joseph's rulership over his family, but also that they would survive through famine, and be elevated with Joseph according to God's purposes. And then the drama of the narrative moves from the dream of chapter 37 to chapter 45, where the fulfillment becomes visible. And between the prophetic prediction and the fulfillment, there are then three chapters devoted to Joseph's rise in the empire and rule over Egypt, which we have been looking at in previous months, and then now we come into a place where there, to parallel that are three more chapters regarding his rule over his brothers and fathers. So you've, you've got between the prediction and the fulfillment uh, two parallel sections of, of the longest narrative in the Bible, and it is the three chapters of Joseph being elevated in Egypt, and then three chapters of his family being saved, which was ultimately the goal all along. 
And this is where we pick up this morning as we continue in the life of Joseph with the section concerning the fulfillment of the promised dream, that is, that his father and brothers would bow to his rule. And what's quite interesting as you, as you take a look at this is that Joseph's rulership in Egypt is made secondary by the dreams. Nothing is actually explicitly said of rulership in Egypt. It, it's nothing except for a condition for dealing with his family. Rule over his brothers could only happen as a result of his rule over Egypt. They would never willingly bow otherwise. And so this forms one of the major themes of the story as God brings the rebellious brothers, these would-be dream killers, to fulfill the dream by willingly bending the knee to Joseph. Our text this morning, as I said, is an excerpt from one of the longest, basically seamless narrative sections in Scripture. It's actually longer than most books of the Bible. And to, to get the full picture and to come to the appropriate conclusions, we need to look at the entire story, but it takes over 20 minutes just to read it. So for the sake of time, we'll just be taking these sections according to the introductions of the themes. And so in this first chapter, chapter 42, which we'll look at this morning, it's sectioned off by Jacob's refusal to send Benjamin to Egypt with his brothers. And so this forms an inclusio, that is, it is stated both at the beginning and end like bookends to this chapter. And so we have this sectioned off part of this story where both at the beginning and end, Jacob will not send Benjamin, and we'll find out why. And in between these bookends is the meeting in Egypt in which Joseph demanded that the brothers prove themselves by bringing Benjamin to Egypt. So you see how this forms a major tension in what we're going to look at? J Jacob has decided he will not send his son Benjamin. It's stated both at the beginning and end of the chapter. And the whole middle point is Joseph trying to bring, around, bring it about that Benjamin will be brought to Egypt with his brothers. And, and so this is a major tension in the chapter as the will of wise and knowing Joseph is pitted against the will of his fearful and grieving father. Remember, that the dream has concerned rule over both father and brothers, and God will achieve both through Joseph before the conclusion of the story. And so let's begin to explore this chapter uh, verse by verse. Genesis 42, we'll read verses 1 to 5. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. God has caused a famine to come upon the land. This is stated explicitly in chapter 41, 28. And now his purpose in doing so is beginning to be revealed. Through famine, God initiates the saving process by forcing the family to confront their past and each other. It is severe mercies such as this which will characterize both God and his servant Joseph in this chapter. And Jacob's other sons are only rarely separated into individuals, and when they are, it is telling. But here, this undifferentiated group is bound by their initial act against Joseph. 
together, they had assaulted their brother, sold him into slavery, and deceived their father. And though they seemed to get away with it, they are still bound by the power of an unforgiven past, immobilized by guilt and driven by anxiety. In fact, in the descriptions, it is as though they have no more room to act, no energy for imagination, no ambition, because they can contemplate no future. So they're stagnant and, and frustrated with his son's inactivity. Jacob asks, essentially, why are you standing around looking at each other? They're full-grown men, each with families of their own, and yet no new leader has emerged in this generation. All they have in common is, is the sin that they have committed together, terrible sin. And the eldest, Reuben, wants it desperately to be the leader, but as we will see, he has already been disqualified. And so the brothers passively and silently obey their father. We are then told, verse 4, that Jacob refused to send Benjamin for fear that harm might happen to him. So while he takes authority over the family and displays initiative to supply its physical needs by sending them to Egypt, Jacob continues to be a destructive force spiritually. He, he's, there's this favoritism that he has for the sons of Rachel, his beloved wife. He has three other wives by which all the other sons come. Only Joseph and Benjamin were the sons of Rachel. And so he is now holding on tightly to Benjamin. He, he still grieves over Joseph. In fact, he stated in earlier chapters, he would go to his grave grieving over Joseph. And so he's overprotective of his adult son, Benjamin, uh, but later he seems nearly indifferent to Simeon, um, and so we'll see that. But, but God, using famine and Joseph, will reconcile this family even despite of Jacob's efforts. And so where the brothers are paralyzed by guilt, uh, for Jacob the decisive issue is grief and fear of further grief which blocks any new action. Do you see how these just paralyze the family? They're all either in this terrible grief and fear of future loss, or they're filled with guilt and fear as well. And so the entire family is in a sort of stasis, unable to progress because of sin, but the severe mercy of God through a regional famine spurs His people into motion towards His purposes for them. And so we continue in verse 6. Now, Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies, and you have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are twelve brothers, the son of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. 
by the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you, let him bring your brothers or your brother while you remain confined that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for 3 days. Now in this section we see that uh, for the first of 3 times the brothers bow but for the dream to be fulfilled the brothers Benjamin must eventually join them. See in his dream he's seen this exactly. God has given him a prophetic dream he knows that his 11 brothers and his father are all going to bow to him. And these were the men that would rather kill Joseph than bow to him. But not for the first time, these dream killers unwittingly fulfill the divine dream. Joseph immediately recognizes them. Uh, there is sufficient physical change. They do not immediately recognize him in return. But the word for recognized is repeated three times to emphasize this contrast between Joseph's discernment of the brothers and the brothers' lack of discernment. In reality, they had failed to recognize Joseph even before they sold him. But Joseph recognized them, and while he certainly remembered their deeds against him, their history, this, this horrible family history is superseded by the dream. More than their deeds, verse 9, Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. This is such an important part of the story. Joseph has abusive brothers. They were going to kill him. Then they sold him as a slave. And when he sees them, it's not this massive recollection of the things they had done to him that comes up for him. He remembers the dream. He remembers the promise of God. He knows that these brothers will be elevated with him and will bow to his rule. By the dreams, Joseph knew that God had destined his brothers to be elevated along with him into positions of authority. They were the stars. And by the dreams, Joseph knew that they would play an important role in God's plan. This hasn't happened yet. God will bring it about. And so this makes it clear that Joseph's treatment of his brothers, which follows, is not out of revenge for their former treatment of him, but in response to the dream. Earlier, in chapter 4151, Joseph had named his son Manasseh, forget, connecting that name with God causing him to forget all of his hardship back in his father's house. The hardship of the past for Joseph is forgotten. It's not that he doesn't remember, but it's in the past. It's no longer affecting him. The dreams of the past are what are now recalled when he sees his brother's. Now, some have suggested that Joseph held a grudge against his brothers and is now trying to get revenge, but this is not how the biblical author characterizes him. Instead, he is characterized always as being wise and discerning throughout the narrative, and, and revenge is never wise. Joseph trusts the promise of God in the dream. Now, though he trusts the promise, he does not yet entrust himself to these men. People who sell a brother as a slave are not generally trustworthy. The message is not just entrust yourself to people who are terribly dangerous. Joseph is careful. 
And so the man who planned a strategy for saving Egypt based on Pharaoh's dream now plans a strategy to save his family, both physically and spiritually, based on his own dreams. As we have learned through the story of Joseph already, true wisdom is to act in accordance with God's Word. It's just logical. If God has stated what is going to happen, and God is always the truth teller, if God tells no lie, then it's, it's, true wisdom is it's just logic. It's only logical to act according to the outcome God has announced. Just as Joseph did in storing up grain in Egypt for the famine to come. Remember, Joseph's been told there's going to be seven good years, seven bad years. It's a no-brainer. He doesn't come up with this brilliant rocket science plan. Let's store up some food during the seven good years because we know there's going to be seven bad years. That's wisdom. Wisdom is just to act as though the Word of God is true. Joseph does the same thing. It's totally compared here. He has this brilliant plan to save Egypt. It's so wise, but it's not not intense. It's not complicated. It's simple. It's just act as though the Word of God is true. He does the exact same thing here with his family. What does he know? God has revealed that his 11 brothers will be elevated with him, and they will all bow to his rule. Well, this hasn't happened yet. So he begins to pursue the completion, the fulfillment of God's purposes for his family. So here again, Joseph acts in accordance with what God has declared in the dream. And so Joseph begins by strategizing a way to get Benjamin to join the ten brothers. And this gives us our tension in this chapter. Jacob's like, no way, we're not sending Benjamin. And Joseph knows that the dream fulfillment requires Benjamin to come with his brothers. So he formulates a strategy whereby he can test whether the hearts of his older brothers have changed, all while contesting against the will of Jacob in order to bring Benjamin to Egypt. Now, essential to Joseph's strategy is the superior knowledge, which gives him advantage over his brothers and father in order to bring about the plan of God. And so with his God-given knowledge, Joseph has power over others, and this provides a helpful analogy for God's providence directing people's lives. See, God, it, like Joseph in this story, is, is pulling the strings, working out his strategy. But for God, it's so much more perfect. He knows everything. And so when he sets about to do something, he faithfully accomplishes it. God is directing people's lives. Uh, Where the family sees events in Egypt as affliction and trouble, Joseph is actually strategizing to bring about their good. And as God's righteous and wise suffering servant, Joseph is God's tool for bringing about His purposes for Israel in this story. It isn't always nice. It isn't always comfortable. Famine is hard. Family relationships are hard. Prison and slavery are hard. Joseph's first strategy on behalf of the family is to put the brothers under intense pressure. This is literally his strategy. Let's let's make them squirm. Let's, Let's squeeze them a little. He accuses them of being spies, come to scout out the weaknesses of Egypt and to plunder its now unique resources. An accusation he repeats five times in order to unnerve them and break down their resistance. This first test was designed to awaken their consciences by reminding them of their crimes. He speaks harshly with them. 
But beneath this appearance of severity, there was an underlying affection which is shown in Joseph's private emotional responses, the first of which comes later in verse 24. And three times Joseph goes off privately to weep. And so he has this harsh manner with them for their good and hides the tenderness, hides the gentleness for a time. For now, he pressures them in order to gain information about Benjamin and his father. And so the brothers answer his accusation with a fearful staccato of four quick responses in verses 10 and 11. No, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. You see how this is four answers all at once? Underlying their basic denials is the logic that a father wouldn't risk all of his sons at one time in the dangerous venture of spying. This just wouldn't be done. If a family was going to continue, and remember, there's no social services in this day. A family has to continue. These are the men of the family, the ones who can labor. And they're not going to send all 10 of them at one time and lose them all, perhaps. And so this, this is kind of a good defense. They're like, who in their right mind would send 10 brothers to come as spies? And while they are honest about their family roots and the reason for visiting Egypt, they are obviously uh, quite dishonest about their honest character. (laughs) We're honest men. Uh, Together, they have deceived their father into believing that Joseph had been devoured by a wild animal, uh, not to mention the Shechem fiasco. And so with, with this insider information, Uh, that Joseph has and the knowledge that he had another brother at home, Joseph continues to press them with his repeated accusation, verse 12, which is quite successful as they start adding details to make themselves sound more credible. Like, like they're just like throwing in details to to show that they're being honest. We, verse 13, we, your servants, are 12 brothers, the son of one man in the land of Canaan, and behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. And upon the confession that they have another brother at home, a detail Joseph already knows and has pressed them to reveal, he acts as though this only serves to undermine their defense. So he says, verse 14, it is as I said to you, you are spies. So their defense is, all all of us brothers are here at one time, of course we wouldn't be spies, that would be a stupid risk. And he's like, when he hears that they have a brother of home, this one son left behind suggests that the father knows that spine's dangerous work, and so he has kept one son back to guarantee the family's future. And so he says, you're spies. See, I knew it. In verse 15, he says, by this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. And so Joseph announces, uh, sorry, announces a test But the test is not really whether they are spies. Joseph already knows that they're not spies. But it is to determine whether his brothers have reformed. The word Joseph uses uh, to test comes from metallurgy, where a precious metal is both tested and purified by intense heat. So it's not a process by which the value of the metal is just assessed but it is a process by which the metal is purified and so assessed. It is used in Psalm 66, 10 to 12, another psalm about God's severe mercies, uncomfortable mercies. For you, O God, have tested us. 
You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. Yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. The whole sense of the word means to test in order to determine the value of something. And this is what Joseph is doing. It also reminds us of the only other time this term is used in Genesis when God tested Abraham in chapter 22 by commanding him to sacrifice Isaac. And then this uh, connection is further strengthened when Joseph imprisons them for three days, which is the number of days for which Abraham was also tested. Joseph's test, as when God tests his people, is not designed to ruin the brothers. It's not the test of pass or fail to see whether you're rejected. The test is to burn away the dross and to find out what of value remains. The test is to expose their sin for purification and reveal the God-given treasure beneath. And so, their unconfessed sin, we know, was choking life from the entire family. Only Joseph was prospering during this entire time. Of the family, the one sold as a slave was prospering. Well, the family struggled in this stasis uh, of unconfessed sin. And the pressure cooker of Joseph's devising was only then for their good. He puts them under pressure to test them, just as God does for His people. Three days in the pit would not only convince the brothers that Joseph was serious about his accusation and the threat of being judged guilty by him, but it also puts them into a very familiar situation. In fact, it was the situation they had put Joseph into previously. It was he, Joseph, whom they had considered a spy for their father. He's been accused in this way. And it was he whom they had treated roughly, even throwing him into a pit. Joseph even changes the plan to deal with his brothers in order to parallel his brother's two plans to deal with him in chapter 37. And so at first, he's going to just let one of them go. Later, he decides three days later that he's going to let all but one go. And so just coming back to this idea that Joseph's being vengeful here, three days is a time substantially less than his own imprisonment and slavery, which spanned over 13 years. So we know this can't be Joseph's revenge. Nobody is a slave and in prison for 13 years and like, going to get you back with three days. That's not, a, that's not a revenge, okay? He also shows his concern by only retaining one brother in custody, verse 19, so that the rest could carry enough grain to provide for the hungry families back home. So he's showing compassion, care for them. And so the purpose of this testing is to remind them of their crime and draw out their confession. Verse 18, on the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. So part of the test is Joseph sets life and death before his brothers. Verse 18, do this and you will live. 
Verse 20, do this and you shall not die. In this conversation, only Joseph knows that the famine will last many more years and that the amount of grain he has given them will not be enough to keep the family alive. They will have to return with Benjamin in order to survive. And then he introduces the fear of God, both as his own pledge of honesty, he fears God, but to encourage their own honesty as well. He encourages them right after explaining that he's honest because he fears God, that they should also be honest, ones who fear God. Verse 21 Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen, so now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them, and wept, and he returned to them and spoke to them, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. Through famine sent by God, and through the rough treatment of Joseph, God's servant, the brothers are brought to remember and confess their guilt. Even though this is already amongst or sorry, just amongst themselves at this point. Later, they will confess to others. But right now, it's coming up. It's bubbling up within them. What Joseph's strategy was is coming true. They have been immediately confronted with their sin in these subtle ways. Do you see how he's put them in familiar situations in order to bring to their own minds their guilt? The faith of the brothers is also revealed when even they see Joseph as being God's tool for bringing them to justice. So what Joseph's done to them, they say, look what God's doing to us. They recognize that the pattern of their discipline follows in contrast, or, or sorry, not in contrast, but it follows the uh, pattern of their sin. This is sometimes called talionic justice, the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth sort of justice. When God disciplines people so on the nose for what they have done that they know right away that this is a response to their own evil. I've experienced this many, many times in my life. So talionic justice has been a key theme in the lives of both Jacob and Judah, and the brothers recognize it here. They realize that they are reaping what they have sown. Uh, Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. And so the brothers are made aware that their current distress is directly related to the distress they had caused their brother. And the brothers began to sense that something powerful was happening to them. A sense of divine retribution began to awaken feelings in them that Joseph's cries for mercy and their father's tears had failed to awaken. This is the discipline of God. Now, we have to see here that this is not the wrath of God on the brothers. This is not God in His anger. God is not angry with you, church. He lovingly disciplines and reproves those who belong to Him. The brothers, who are great sinners, have the, the treasure of their faith revealed through the pressure that the testing puts them through. 
And God in His mercy, this severe mercy, is disciplining him. He has established His covenant with this family of brothers. And He will not let them continue to drown in their guilt, fear, and grief any longer. In His covenant love, He will bring them to repentance. And that's what these four chapters, as I begin to explain, is about. Joseph's been elevated to rule Egypt, but this is all for a purpose. The purpose is to save these terrible brothers, the rebellious brothers, Judah, the ancestor of Jesus Christ and of King David. And so God in His covenant love is bringing His people to repentance. We also see that Joseph's testing is having its desired result. Under the intensity of all his heat, the dross comes to the surface and the faith of the brothers is exposed. Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, keeps trying to be the next leader in the family. And while he has good intentions, his I told you so is not very helpful. Joseph ke- or Reuben keeps on being the guy who ha- has like, he means well, but he's not very helpful. And all the way through the story, every time he talks, he's contrasted with Judah. Every time Reuben speaks, Judah will speak separately in contrast to him. And Judas, uh, Reuben speaks twice in this chapter. And part of this being a story that uh, this section is three chapters long. We won't see the contrasting statements from Judah until the following chapters. So, so we'll speak more about Reuben then. But for now, Reuben's statements reveal that while he was not personally responsible for Joseph's slavery... He was also an impotent leader in the family. Nobody listened to him. Just as they didn't listen to him then, Jacob doesn't listen to him now. As I said, this will be contrasted with Judah later. Until now, Joseph would probably have held Reuben most responsible for casting him into the pit. But here, Joseph hears, they think he can't understand, but he hears them for the first time that his eldest brother had exposed this action and, and had intended to rescue him out of it. Sorry, he had opposed this action. So Reuben had tried to rescue him, probably for his own status in the family. But, but either way, he realizes that the one who would have been considered the most responsible is not responsible. And this is probably the reason that Simeon is selected. If you wonder why Joseph selects Simeon, he's the second oldest brother. And it's just been revealed that the oldest brother was not a part of the plot against him. And so Simeon now is to remain in custody because he is the second oldest brother and would be held most responsible for the actions against Joseph. What we need to see here is that in 13 intervening years of guilt and shame experienced by Joseph's brothers, it it has enslaved and imprisoned them no less than Joseph's chains had done to him. And through the intervention of God, through Joseph's testing, They now clearly recognize their culpability and acknowledge that punishment is therefore due. They confess amongst themselves to hard-heartedness and blood guilt. And their confessions caused Joseph to weep. And though he would certainly have desired to relent and embrace them even now, as God often would desire to relent in harsh discipline to bring us to salvation, he is resolved to see the test through to the end to determine the extent of his brother's repentance and to bring about the fulfillment of the dream. Verse 25, And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and gave them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. 
They, then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another saying, what is this that God has done to us? So the second strategy is enacted. The first strategy is the accusation of being spies and being thrown into a pit, much like they had done to Joseph. Now the second strategy is another familiar situation which they have already experienced. So in the last one, he reverses their positions. Now he puts them in the same position once again. Like the first strategy, it's to force his brothers to face their past by putting them in these situations. In each of their sacks of grain, the brothers found money or silver. It's the same term. And it's the exact same term which is used for the 20 shekels of silver money that the brothers received for the sale of Joseph. Now, this might test whether the brothers still value money over the life of a brother. But more directly, it duplicates the situations that the brothers had experienced in the past. This is not the first time the brothers had come home with extra money having abandoned a brother to prison in Egypt. See how he recreates a familiar setting? They've got extra silver and they're missing a brother. This has happened before. Again, in verse 28, they attribute to God what has been perpetrated by Joseph, God's servant. What is this that God has done to us? As God's instrument, it seems to me that Joseph is being quite subtle here. I I don't know that I would pick all these things up, but the brothers have no problem at all understanding the message. They were guilty, and God was bringing their guilt out into the open. Verse 29, when they came to Jacob their father in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies but honest men and I will deliver your brother to you and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack and when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. And Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin? All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow. To Sheol. The brothers explain themselves to Jacob in the best light without making any confession to him. So while they have confessed among themselves, they're still trying to hold back their secret sin. And then the money is found in their sacks. The brothers are afraid 
and Jacob reacts by accusing them with an outburst, you would bereave me of my children. And see, up to this point, Jacob probably found the story credible, but the money makes them look guilty. Again, Jacob knows that this is the second time his sons have left home and returned minus one brother, but with extra silver in their possession. And for Jacob, this is too much to be a coincidence. He may have given them the benefit of the doubt in the past, but two times starts to make a pattern. And the money in the sacks proves to him that they are guilty, and now they would like to take another brother back with them, like (laughs) as if, right? You've gone away with two sons. Each time you come back with extra money, you want to borrow another son? No, thank you. And so he says, you have, verse 36, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin. The loss of Simeon only reminds Jacob of how they had brought back a report of Joseph's death. And now in his grief, he clings all the more to his full-grown baby boy. And once again, Reuben tries to take leadership and responsibility. And once again, his efforts are short-sighted and ineffective. As if the threat against two of his grandchildren would console Jacob. Like, yes, if Benjamin dies, then I'd like to kill two of my grandkids. Like, it's not, it's not smart. <laughs> Reuben's suggestion would only further jeopardize this family. And so in contrast, and I have to point to it even though it's two chapters away, in contrast, Judah will offer himself as a slave in the place of Benjamin which will solidify his leadership position in Israel and really is the whole purpose of these chapters as the work of God and the work of God through his servant Joseph is bringing these horrible brothers into a place of repentance and then transformation. And so Judah at the end becomes a loving brother, an honorable man, a good leader for Israel because of God's work and Joseph's work that God is doing through him. Reuben, though, fails to assure Benjamin's safety by threatening his children. And so the passage ends as it begins, with Jacob's refusal to risk the life of his last remaining son by his beloved wife. It it is a brutal statement that Jacob makes here at the end. My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, verse 38. And he is the only one left. (laughs) Jacob has... Ten other sons. And so this is a mean thing to say. He's like, he's the only one left. It shows that the rift, it shows the rift that has been formed between Jacob and his children as his eyes are finally open to their evil. So they haven't confessed to him, but he sees. He sees they've brought back money again. And he doesn't believe them this time. And so the favoritism that Jacob shows to his, the sons of Rachel has never been more blatant. And there's this rift now between Jacob and his children. He knows he's been deceived. Once again, in the providence of God, all of this works out for their good. This is, this is the amazing thing about Scripture. You can talk about reading Scripture and seeing like really weird stories and really convoluted, complicated, and sometimes gross stories of what happens in human sin. But the ultimate result is that God is rescuing His people. He's got a plan. Despite them, despite all their terrible choices, He's rescuing them. This is a family that does not deserve 
any sort of salvation, and yet God has covenanted with them. He's given them His promise, and He will not be shown to be a liar. Everything works out for good. Joseph's suffering, his being sold as a slave, his imprisonment, he suffered, but he suffered differently. And this is, again, where Joseph is, is different than the brothers. Joseph is this uniquely elect one. He's the one God has, has elevated in order to save the brothers. He is the suffering servant. And so Joseph suffered for righteous obedience. Jacob and his sons suffer as a result of their sin in a way in which they can see God's hand bringing about their discipline. So both things happen in the life of believers. We suffer as God's discipline. It brings to, attention, uh, to our attention our guilt. Our conscience are, is pricked. We, we repent. But he also calls us to be like Joseph and like Christ, suffering for righteousness' sake. And so both can speak to us here this morning. Both suffer. Joseph for righteousness' sake. The brothers and Jacob suffer for their sin. And this is the love of God. The severe mercy in which he uses both natural consequences and talionic justice to bring about the marvelous plan for, he has for his people. God uses both the famine and Joseph's harsh speech to discipline, test, and teach the shattered family. The unconfessed guilt of the brothers has enormous power. They are harnessed to the past. They can only look at each other instead of acting together for the common good. They suffer with hidden guilty conscience, alienated from God, their father, and from one another. The fearful grief of Jacob has enormous power. He cannot risk enough to live. Stagnant, his life is defined by worry and anxiety and grief. Because of the loss of a son, he is unable to entrust the future of his family fully to God. Sin is an enormous power in the life of this family. But the mercy of God is more. An omnipotent, overwhelming, and undeniable power. The famine and Joseph's tests were an important mercy in God's plan to channel his blessing through this family, bringing the guilt of the brothers to the surface so that they could be freed from the power of sin. Whenever believers have unresolved guilt in their lives, God is faithful to stir up our consciences, to bring us to repentance and freedom. And He will do this through testing, which will expose the filth and reveal the precious faith He has gifted us with. He can be trusted to bring us to spiritual maturity in faith so that we will become honest with ourselves and with others and be trusted to act righteously. Let's pray. Father, it's with trepidation that I invite you personally and all those who agree, just agree in assent in your own mind, we invite you to do this work in us. Bring us to repentance. In your mercy we pray.
May we be quick listeners. May we not need more discipline than is necessary. But bring us, I pray, to confession. Bring us, I pray, to trust you for the future. What a powerful message that the worst of humanity cannot derail your plan. Even brothers who sold their brother after contemplating his murder are rescued by that very action. Lord, we thank you for your providence, your severe mercy which uses all things for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purposes and for your glory. And so, Lord, we invite you to do this work in our church. Make us a people of repentance, I pray. Call us through your mercy to confess our sins because you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We ask this both for our sake and for your glory. Glorify the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.